And you guys remember dot to dot, um, you know, the, the little puzzle they give you, the dot to dot puzzle, okay? And in the middle of the dot to dot, there was always something that went along with the puzzle, and uh, it made sense after you connected all the dots when the picture was put together. And this is what, uh, this is what happened last week. I wanted so desperately to make the middle of the picture make sense. I, I, did, I failed to like sufficiently connect all the dots and also explain why the picture made sense with, with this main thing uh, being explained. And so uh, I wanted to just spend just a, a brief, I'm, I say brief, um, so hold me to it. I want to recap last week so that I can really get down to the bottom uh, level of, of why I presented the way I did. And I, I was just um, sort of frustrated with myself. So let me just say this. Um, last week, we dealt with baptism of the Spirit. And I, I wanted to, to make sure that everybody was on the same page with that. So let me just um, start with, we saw the last time in all of church history, in redemptive history, that the the, the phrase, the baptism of the Spirit, or the falling of the Holy Spirit happens. And it's distinct because this is a, a unique moment in redemptive history, okay? And so uh, here's the bottom line of why baptism of the Spirit is important, because it is the sign of the new covenant. So in the Spirit, we are reconciled to God through Christ in faith, okay? That's a, that's a very simple way of putting uh, what the gospel is for us, okay? Hey, in Christ, you can be reconciled to God uh, not through any work on your behalf, but just through faith, okay? And um, we see in this moment that when you do that, when you act in faith, you are then a Christian and you're baptized in the Spirit in that moment because baptism is just a sign, the actual physical sign of you going down in the water is a, is a symbol of what's happened spiritually, okay? That you've identified with the death and the resurrection of Christ. And you're saying, I too have died to sin and I'm raised to new life, okay? And so we get this picture of, what it means to belong to God through faith. And that's what believer's baptism is. So um, the, the fact of the matter remains that if you have not been water baptized, you have failed to obey what Christ said in the commission. Baptize them in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But we get a, a glimpse here of the last moment of a group of people who have not yet come into this covenant in, in the same way as Christ has commanded in the commission. Okay, And so that's why we had this unique moment last week. And so and we are to take uh, that and, and um, not make it seem to say something that it doesn't say. And so I want to um, start with what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, Because in one spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You're going to have to grab that message uh, and, and throw the slides up. Okay, so that's 1 Corinthians. And so the emphasis here is on the fact that there are two groups of people, Jews who have the covenant, and Greeks, who are just like everybody else in this sense, and we're all unified together in Christ. In one spirit, we're made to drink and in baptize, um, and, and we're united to Christ in this, okay? And so in verse 6 of chapter 19 last week, we get this picture that when uh, Paul had come, he discovered these disciples of John, and he, he asked them, hey, what, what were you baptized into? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, okay? And so it says after he has um, divulged to them that what they believed in was Christ, the name that they trusted in was Christ, it says on hearing this, they're baptized in the name of Jesus. And so the emphasis then is on the name that we're baptized into and how we belong to him. 
And then it says, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. This is an important uh, phrase there. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. These are two distinct signs, and therefore believers and for unbelievers. You have both there. And so I I made a point to to, um, help you see that specifically the sign of tongues that is identified with baptism of the Spirit uh, by Paul's own words and by his own writing in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, In the law it is written, By the people of strange tongues, by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people. Even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues, listen, are a sign for believers. Or not for believers, but for unbelievers. And I messed that up last week too. So I wanted to say that the right way. So tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So why does he say this? Because Isaiah prophesied that people that did not originally belong to the covenant would be brought in from, from far away, and they would belong to God. And by them um, prophesying, speaking works in, in uh, strange languages that would have not been Hebrew, right, or Aramaic, then they're um, supposed to be assigned to those who are unbelieving, that this really is the work of God. Okay, so this is a sign. Why, why are tongues a sign? Because unbelievers see that God is doing something that can only be explained by God. So, um, and then he says prophecy is a sign then um, for believers. So prophecy is to evoke truths and to speak truths for God. So in context, 1 Corinthians um, says this. 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 14, 21. In the law it's written, by a people of strange tongue and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me. So he's, he's talking here about the Jews. He says, even when this happens, that, that the Jews will, not all, but some, most, will persist in unbelief. Thus, tongues are a sign, for, not for believers. Okay, why? Because because God is doing something that he prophesied he would do, and he says even when they see that, they're going to persist and not believe. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? He said if everybody gets together, and it's not for the purpose of saying, look how filled with the Spirit we are, we can speak in tongues. He says that's not for you. It's it's for the... um, you're not supposed to gather together and, and say that's the manifestation of the Spirit. It's a sign to those who are unbelieving. And then he goes on to say, but if all prophesy, because this is what Paul wants. He wants people to speak what is true about God so that people can hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. That's what pro- prophetically speaking is not forth-telling. It's, it's truthful-telling. It's being uh, operating as a mouthpiece for the Lord. And it says, so that if all prophesy, then an unbeliever or an outsider could enter. So if we all came together and we were all speaking prophetically, that means speaking the words of God, the truths of God, then somebody could come in from the outside and then they would hear those things and it says they would be convicted and they would be, um, the, the secrets of their hearts would be disclosed and they would fall on their face and they would worship God and declare, surely God is among you, okay? So there's, there's both of the signs that are given at this last moment of um, the last group of people that are coming into the, the redemptive history of the church. So we had first Jews, and then we had Samaritans, and then we had Gentiles, which represented sort of all of the people groups, but then we had this one group that doesn't exist anymore, okay? Which is those who had heard the prophecy of John the Baptist saying, the Messiah is going to follow me. He's going to come, 
And they believed in that message, and they're the last ones. So nobody else has sort of put their trust in the, in the message of John the Baptist that doesn't exist anymore. And that's why the command to be baptized in believer's baptism stands, okay? So if you've not yet been baptized, you need to do that. With that being said this morning, um, let me read to you Galatians 3, 26. It says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. So as many of you as have been, remember the word baptism isn't talking about dunking somebody in water. Baptism means to put into. So he says, if you, have, if you in faith are in Christ, then you've been put into the body through the work of the Spirit, okay? So, so as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ so that there is neither Jew nor Greek. So the, the, what's being represented here is the uniting of all of the disparate and, and disenfranchised and all of the, the people that did not have the covenants being brought together into the kingdom of God. So Jew or Greek, there's not slave or free, there's no male or female, all of the distinctions that would cause us to say, I'm in and you're out, those are all erased in Christ, in the spirit. So if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Okay, so Jesus only gave two things that we're supposed to observe. One is baptism, and this is the second, the Lord's Supper. He said, make sure that whenever you gather together, you, you do this thing that represents your belonging to me, and it, it commemorates what was done on our behalf and how it is that we belong in this covenant. So this morning, you should have the bread in the cup. So I, I went through all of that to talk about the importance of the fact that you don't have to do something extra. There's no there's no extra work of the Spirit that happens on top of your, your just being united to Christ in faith. That is the, the baptism of the Spirit, and it is baptized, being baptized into the body of Christ. And so this happens by Jesus doing all of the work on our behalf. He comes, he gives his body up for us, he receives the just penalty for sin, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus tasted death, went to the grave, was resurrected three days later, and he said, now all power and all authority belongs to me. And that's why that scripture we read, Philippians, says he's been given the name that is above every other name. There is no other name in which men can be saved. So here it is this morning. This bread represents the body that was broken for you, the, the flesh and blood that received the penalty for sin. And then this cup represents the, the cup of the new covenant, that we share in all of this uniting thing, that we're all drinking the same, um, if you will, blood of the covenant. Okay? The, the blood of the covenant is, is what makes it true, what makes it whole, what ensures that it will be um, held to. And it's Christ's blood that we are joined to him with and that was shed for us. So this morning, let me pray for our communion. And then you can take and eat and drink and then we'll continue with the message this morning. So, I distinctly said, this is the last instance of, of spirit baptism, but that doesn't negate the command, which is where we left off last week with being filled with the Spirit. That's an ongoing imperative. You must be being filled with the Spirit. It's the, it's the action that you're commanded to do. Be being filled with the Spirit. So, though that was the final instance of spirit baptism, um, it comes because of this unique moment and the place that Paul's arrived. The, the emphasis here is, on the, the name of Christ, the, the uniting of different groups of people unto that name, 
and the power of the Spirit versus the power of the, the, the Spirit of the world, if you will. And so that kind of comes to fullness this morning um, in our text. So we'll be in Acts chapter 19. I, I want to jog back um, just a few steps so that we can uh, pick it up where we left off, which is in verse 8. And um, can you guys see that? Is that, is that good? Okay. So um, it says that after Paul had laid hands on these disciples and they received the Spirit and they're prophesying and, and, and they're speaking in tongues, it says that after that, then he goes into the synagogue. So this is like uh, an indication. Um, one of the pieces last week that I really wanted to say and I forgot to, that these guys were not part of the synagogue. So uh, the synagogue is the same synagogue that Paul first entered and he shared the message and they invited him to stay and he said, I can't stay, I have to keep a vow. And he left. And then remember, Apollos shows up and he only knew the baptism of John. And so he's corrected in that and Priscilla and Aquila are part of that. And then he, in uh, fervent spirit, goes to, to Corinth and he's now uh, preaching powerfully there and um, spreading the gospel there. But it was after receiving the Spirit, that Paul entered the synagogue and he, he begins preaching again about the way. So this tells me that these guys did not belong. They weren't Jews or they weren't proselytes because they weren't part of the synagogue. He had discovered them outside of that. And so they, they are this, this last vestige of people that needed to be brought in or baptized, initiated into the kingdom of God. And so what Paul does after that happens is that we see this phrase, the kingdom of God, and then these, these different groups of people, both Jews and Greeks, is a phrase that's repeated several times. It's not common to the way that Luke speaks. And so he, he's really trying to emphasize a point here. And so he says, he entered the synagogue, and for three months, Paul spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Why? Because the Jews were looking for the arrival of the kingdom of God. And it was supposed to be brought with the Messiah. And so that's the, the point of Paul's reasoning is he goes in, he says, the Messiah's come, and here's how you know that. Because all of the signs uh, that just happened when these guys were baptized in the Spirit, they were prophesying and they were speaking in tongues. That was what Isaiah had said was going to happen. It said, these, from a people of foreign lips, I'm going to speak to you. And what happens in response to this, we find out in verse 9, but some became stubborn and they continued in unbelief, which is exactly what was said. He said, even when I speak to you from a foreign people, you're still not going to respond. So here's what happened. Some decide not to respond. So it says they persist in unbelief and they became stubborn and they're speaking evil of the way, capitalized the way, that is Christ himself. They're actually reviling Jesus and they're speaking evil about following him as the Messiah. And so in, in response to this, it says Paul withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him and he then decided to go somewhere else. So he, he leaves the synagogue or sort of where the Jewish influence is and he takes that out into the streets and he just starts reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus, which is some of you wonder where um, dinosaurs are in the Bible. There you go. Um, that's awesome. That's just a great name. Um, and apparently he's like a school teacher. So imagine a school teacher with a name Tyrannus, which means tyrant, okay? Um, so anyway, he, he, um, he's able to reason daily in, in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that, listen, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. There's that phrase again, reasoning about the kingdom of God. And, and they're hearing this and 
What you need to know is that the Hall of Tyrannus, um, they're, they're in uh, Asia, and it's hot during the day. And so Paul's going in the heat of the day, and he's reasoning with the groups of people that would come. And so what they do is they, they would take a break in the middle of the day when it was hottest, and they would go home, and they would, like, nap or, or do whatever after the, the heat hours had passed. And they would go, and so they kind of did the day, the work day, in, in, like, two shifts, right? Well, what's happening is that Paul's using that time where most people are breaking, uh, and, and he's using it to, to spread the gospel. And so because of this— because of his faithfulness, because of just sweat equity that he's investing here. It says, after two years of doing this, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's a, that's a, a large statement, and it's a generalization, but it, it emphasized the fact that Paul had, had sufficiently spread the word of the kingdom, that G- Jesus was the Christ, that he had arrived. And so Paul, um, after they had, um, we don't often see him like choosing to separate when he meets resistance. But here it says, after they begin reviling, speaking evil the way, that that's when he kind of separates himself because he doesn't want um, this, this mixing of people that are new in the faith being d- discouraged in what the Jews are saying or, or having some detracting. So um, he, he takes the disciples with him, and, and then this is, explodes. And um, so tongues and prophecy uh, become an important part because both Jews and Greeks are, are being brought into the kingdom. So it's, it's both and. It's not just Jews. It's not just Greeks. And so uh, it's having the effect, the intended effect that it was meant to. So now we pick it up into something new, starting in verse 11. So let me read all the way through verse 20 so you get a lay of the land. Okay, that's where we left off last week. And I didn't get a chance to explain any of that. And so there you go. So starting in verse 11, I'm just going to read to the end so that you have a sense of what's happening. Now, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish priest, high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, and he mastered all of them, and he overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, and they were confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, and they burned them in the sight of all, and they, conti- and they counted the value of them, and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, that's the whole passage. We'll probably mostly just wind up at 18, but I needed you to hear what happened at the end of that. What you need to know about Ephesus is it is, it is inundated in, in spirituality, okay? And it, the response to the word of God prevailing is that these guys, they bring their magic spell books and they burn them and they come to quite a sum. But back in verse 11, um, sort of lays, lays the, the groundwork for what's happening and, and why... Um, why this environment and some of these miracles that are happening, emphasizing the name that these, these guys were baptized into and how it's prevailing as opposed to, I said, the spirit of the world. So it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Um, extraordinary. That means out of the ordinary. Extra means outside of, and ordinary is ordinary, okay? So it's outside of the normal. Now, you would think miracles are outside of the normal, but they're saying as the course of miracles go, which is, um, 
When, when God intervenes into the natural order of affairs, that's a miracle. There's what should happen, and then if God intervenes in what should happen, and something else happens as a result, that's a miracle, right? It was unexpected, and God has intervened in what we would consider the natural circumstances. They're supernatural now, right? But when, 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 what, what he's saying about these specific kinds of miracles is that they're, they're extraordinary in the sense that they don't really happen as the norm. We, we've seen something sort of like it uh, when, um, I think it was back in Acts chapter 8, where it says even uh, Peter's shadow falling on some people was healing them. And so what we have here is Paul, Paul's um, apron and his handkerchief are being used and, and they're, they're um, healing people. So the emphasis here is not on um, Paul's stuff. It's not on what Paul's doing. It's in the very beginning of verse 11. It says, and who was doing extraordinary miracles? God was. God was doing the working. God was choosing to use this moment and this specific method for a specific purpose. Um, these two items are very, um, like it's, it's not just random like clothing that he had. They're very specific items. Um, one is like, literally it's just the word for a sweat rag and the other is for like a work apron, okay? And so what we find out about Paul, and Paul says this later, is like, when I came and, and I determined to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified, and he said, I didn't take anything. I didn't, I didn't want to take any money from you. And so what Paul's done is he's like a bivocational pastor. He works to earn his living, and then he preaches the gospel for free. He doesn't want to take anything from anybody lest he be accused of benefiting or profiting off the message that he shares. So Paul works hard, and what's happening is people are coming and they're stealing his stuff and they're taking it to people and people are being healed from it. So I need to make some um, important distinctions here. So Paul, uh, though he is working hard and um, I, I lost my place. Okay. And he's not trying to benefit off these things. He's not offered them up as a solution. He's not said, hey, if I don't have time for that, if you take my stuff and bring it to these people, it'll heal them. There, there's no sense where, where Paul has said that um, the, he's not made any claims about these specific items. It's just something that people are doing in spite of him, really. And he's not, he's not asked for anything in return. He's not being paid for them. And this stands in contrast to other people like TV preachers today who would use this text to say something like, you pay me and I will give you some blessed item to, to heal you. So this happens and people have offered everything from like, you know, their sweat hankies for your physical healing and, and blankets which provide fertility and rocks which will make your bank account increase. And, and that stands in contrast to Paul who, who gains nothing from it, who claimed nothing about it versus people today who claim something about it and benefit from it. Do you see the distinction here? Okay, and so the, the emphasis here is on God working through this method, not, not Paul choosing to use it. He's not like, hey, let's try this thing out. I wonder if it'll work, okay? P God is using this unique moment and because of the, the environment that he's in, which I mentioned earlier. So Ephesus is a culture that's it's steeped in um, the idea of spiritual powers, authorities, and false worship. Um, so it's not a stretch here um, to, to think um, that this, this is being done distinctly to, to be in contrast to the way that people are thinking about how do I get power over something? How do I, how do I have access to it? How do, I, how do I manage some problem in my life? So TV preachers would say is that you have a problem in your life? Pay me, you know, 
$200 and I'll sell you this rock and it'll, I blessed it, I prayed over it and it'll heal you or whatever it is, right? So, so that's, that is the environment of Ephesus. You just pick the God, pick the issue and I'll find the way those two things meet up and, and you can be healed and I benefit and you benefit, okay? That's Ephesus. And Paul has come and he's done something distinctly different where he says, I'm not here for my own profit. I just want you to know the God who is the God overall. And, and, and salvation can only be found in Jesus' name. Okay, now because of these extraordinary miracles that are happening in the environment of Ephesus, we find out a group of people who have latched on to this power. So verse 13 says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so you, when you see itinerant Jewish exorcist, that's like a, uh, it's a mouthful, but it, it's a made up phrase. You can think gypsy, okay? These, these were Jewish guys who were going around claiming that they could exercise demons. And in a place like Ephesus, they, they would make a living or they, and they would travel to the next town. So they'd show up and say, hey, you got an issue, you got a spirit, we'll cast it out, you pay us, and, we'll, and then they would just travel to the next town because that, that gig only lasts for so long if you're not doing it. Does that make sense? You, you make a promise, you get paid, and you say, thanks a lot, see you later. So they were itinerant in the sense they just move and move and move and move. That's these guys. Some itinerant Jewish exorcists see what's happening with Paul's stuff, being stolen, people are being healed, evil spirits are leaving people. And they're like, hey, if we, if we co-op this name, we co-op this power, we can really up our, our gig. Like, it's like adding the new laser light show to their, to their show. And that's exactly what they do. Is they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So they're like, hey, let's try this new thing. If somebody has an evil spirit, we're going to use the name of Jesus, okay? So that's setting the stage for what's happened. And um, now let, let me ask you just a, a quick question. If I said, do you believe in magic? And you would say, yes or no? Raise your hands. Yes, I do. <laughs> Only one person. Thank you. Uh, now, now that's important because do you believe in magic used to be the, the, the jingle for McDonald's, I think, right? Is that right? Do you believe in magic? But it was also, a, I forget it. That's so, guys, that was a squirrel and I, I looked right at it. Okay, here's the thing. You don't, you don't believe in magic because you're qualifying it based on somebody doing a trick and then they, they know how the trick is done and they just say, it was done by magic. And you know that it wasn't some, you know, woo, magic that made that thing happen. There's a trick underneath that, right? But I, I need you to have a better definition of what magic is. Magic is either the real or, or faked manipulation or interfacing with spiritual powers. Okay? The real or faked manipulation or interfacing with spiritual powers or authorities by either, um, like a, um, by, by authority, by power. Let me get my um, definition. Magic is manipulation or interaction with spiritual realities or forces through power, authority, knowledge, whether that's, whether that's real or it's, or it's faked. So somebody may say, hey, I, I'm doing this thing and, and really believe that they're doing it, but not really be doing it. But somebody might say, hey, I'm doing this thing and really be accomplishing something in the spiritual world, but they know nothing about it. Does, does that make sense? We're going to dig more into this next week. But when it says that these guys decided to undertake the name of the Lord Jesus and use it to speak it like magic words, like something they could just sprinkle fairy dust on over an evil spirit, and they're going to use that as part of their act. 
But what they don't know is that they're, they're actually engaging in something that's real. So when I say magic in that sense is real, in the sense that you're, you're interfacing and engaging with spiritual powers, whether you mean to or not, and whether you really think you're doing it or not. And, and sometimes to avail, but mostly not. Okay? And there's only one way that you prevail in interfacing with spiritual powers, and that's by the name of Jesus. Because it's, it's Jesus' name that's currently casting out evil spirits, healing people, all the things that they want to do. And Ephesus had these, these, uh, these people who practiced these quote-unquote dark arts or, or mar- magic where they would either figure out the right demon to pray to, and sometimes those things are honored. So somebody that would be considered a sorcerer or something like that w- would have these powers that seem to be magical, but all they are is, is communing with the demonic. Do you, am, I, am I painting a picture here? I hope so, okay? So, so here's the deal. Um, these, these, these sons of Sceva come, and they have claimed a name that they don't have. Um, the Jewish records for the high priest, the actual high priest of the temple in Judaism, well kept, and, and there is never one by this name. So this is a name that these guys have taken on, the, the high priest of whatever. And, so, and, and, they, and they're promoting their act, if you will. We are the seven sons of Sceva, the high priest of Judaism. But they're not really representing Judaism. And here they come, bringing their name, uh, pretending to invoke this powerful name of Jesus as though they control it or as though they manipulate it. And so um, they're, they're trying to use the name of Jesus for their own gain. In contrast to, to Paul, who was not using the, the name for his gain at all. Um, so they don't have any real authority. They don't have any real tie to um, Jesus. And so um, if I was to show up today and I was donning, I put this jersey on, right? And I show up and I ask to be led on the field. And I'm like, right here. The name is here, guys, right? And I just go out there. I start barking, Omaha, right? Here we go. Are they going to let me out there? Why? I have the authority. I have the name. Here it is, okay? I have this name and I've put it on, right? And so in some way, I'm identifying with it. That's, that's exactly what these guys have done. They see a name that has power and they say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that on. I'm going to pretend to use it and I should be able to manipulate it and use it however I want to. But guess what? There's probably thousands of other fans that are going to show up at the stadium and none of them also get to play just for wearing the jersey, just for donning the name. Now, this is the distinction between actually having the name and um, misusing the name or, or treating it as something that's magical. But... Um, Let's talk about this. So in the, they're, they're saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. So this is the first sort of betrayal that they don't really know what they're dealing with. They're, they're saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul talks about, because they don't actually have any personal interaction with the name of Jesus. So there's strike one. And, uh, it says, and so they're using Jesus' name without actually knowing Jesus, which is like identity theft. And so this does not go well for them. So they say, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, um, and it says, um, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul um, I recognize, but who are you? Okay? And um, either way, you never, just don't ever talk to demons. It's probably a bad idea. But nonetheless, if this is the response, you, you know you're in trouble. They they've, uh, took it on themselves to, to just kind of use the name however they want to. And um, the, 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 the demon kind of calls them on it. But he uses two different words for no. The first one is, is Jesus I, I am familiar with. I, have a, I, I know who he is, okay? That's the, it's a gnosis is the word, which means knowledge of, okay? And then the, the second time he says, Paul, Paul we've heard of, if you want to think about it that way. 
Paul we recognize, okay? So Jesus we know, Paul we recognize, but I never heard of you, okay? And that's the collective view of seven guys who show up and they want to invoke the name of Jesus over this evil spirit. And it says, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and maybe in one of probably the greatest turn of phrases in, um, in scripture, mastered all of them and overpowered them so they fled out of that house naked and wounded, okay? So if you go into a fight with clothes and leave without clothes, you have lost the fight, okay? Physically, spiritually, dignity, name, it's all gone, right? It's all gone. So it says they, they've tried to interface with, this, with the demonic realm using a name they don't have any authority over, right? Here I am. I'm trying to use a name I, I don't actually own. I have no authority over it. And the demon says, look, I know who that is. I know who the person you're talking about is, but I don't know any of you guys. And so he, it says he leapt on seven guys, mastered them. That's an important phrase. He, he mastered them, okay? And then it says, so they leave the house. That house phrase is also important. He overpowered them. They fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known throughout all, um, to all the residents of Ephesus. Their act is, is ruined for good. If you proclaim to do something, we are exorcists of demons, and, and this happens to you, and then it becomes known throughout all of the region, you will never return to that town with any profit, right? So um, this is the contrast of two names. These guys are so thoroughly powerless uh, to invoke any authority over this demon, name or no name, that they only realize that once it's too late. And so this is um, the question of by what power or what authority can demons or can um, victory over anything in the, in the demonic or spiritual realm be won? Okay, so uh, uh, let's just, we're going to take a side road here because it all ties back together. So in, um, in Matthew 12, um, Jesus is um, doing just this very thing, which is casting out demons. And it says, uh, a demon, let me just read it, okay? Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? Just pause there for a second. Why, why is this their response? Well, because you will not find it. You can search the whole Old Testament. There's never an exorcism in the Old Testament. So, so there's like sort of, um, extra biblical records of people engaging in that activity but never being successful. And Jesus shows up on the scene and simply by commanding, he's able to exercise evil spirits and he's able to heal people. And what, what um, they should know, what, when I say they, that means the Jews and the scribes and the Pharisees, what they should know is that these were signs that only the Messiah could perform, that only God could do. Okay, signs and wonders are important. And so it says, a demon-oppressed man was blind. Uh, I'd better skip down, otherwise i read it all again. Okay, so they ask, can this be the son of David? Is this actually the Messiah? Because he's, he's exerting a power that we don't have. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, that's here, just here Satan, okay? It's only by the Lord of the flies that the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. So knowing their thoughts, he said that he is Jesus. He said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided, house divided is important. Remember the guys, they're overpowered. He leapt on them and they leave that house. That's a very specific definitive article. They leave that house naked and wounded, okay? But it says a house divided against itself, how will it stand? And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. So how then will this kingdom stand, Jesus asked. So what's happened here is that he's cast out a demon. They say, 
He's not doing this by God's power. He's not the Messiah. He's doing this by the power of the devil. And Jesus is like, how does that make any sense? If the, de- if, if the devil turns against himself, how can the house of the devil persist? If he's, if he's fighting against himself, casting out demons, how, what, what sense does that make, okay? So he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Okay, that's a prophetic phrase. Your sons, when they try to cast them out, if they're successful or not successful, they're going to judge whether or not I've done this by the hand of God or not. And then Jesus goes on to say, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the exact thing that Paul is in Ephesus reasoning about the kingdom of God. And he's asserting, because tongues and prophecy and evil spirits are leaving and healings are happening, and he's saying, here it is. It's upon you. The kingdom is here. All the signs are here, and it's done by the Spirit of God. And he says, but look, if, if it's done by the devil, then he's fighting against himself, and that kingdom and that house can't stand. Okay, going on. Verse 29 says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? These, these seven sons of Sceva go in, and this demonically oppressed man, and they want, they're going to free him. He belongs to the devil. That is, that is Satan's property. And what Jesus is saying in this, in this um, moment, previous to that, right, is that no one can go into the strong man's house in this, in this moment. The strong man is the devil. He says, unless he first binds him up, and then he can plunder his goods, okay? So unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me is scattered or, is, or will scatter. That's, that's also a prophetic statement exactly playing out here in this moment in Acts. Okay, now we need to go one deeper, one, one rabbit trail further in Revelation 20. Revelation 20 says this, that he being um, Jesus, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the pit, and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he, he might not deceive the nations any longer. Okay? That, that's an important word, and, and that's an important phrase. So what's, what's happened here is Jesus says in John 12, now is the moment when the ruler of this world is judged, and he's cast out. And he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, uh, these are all connections going back to this thing where Satan's house is being plundered, but he can't be plundered by Jesus' own declaration unless he's first been bound. And this is the binding here. He's not bound from any activity. Clearly there's activity. Clearly there's a demon-possessed guy in this moment. What is he bound from doing? He's bound from deceiving the nations about the truth of Christ. When it says deceiving the nations any longer, that means that both Jew and Greek can hear the word of the Lord and be reconciled. And he's not able to do this anymore. So this is all going to tie back together. Believe it or not, okay? So, they leave that house unsuccessful, which is exactly what Jesus said. If, you're, if your sons, um, if I'm doing this by the power of Beelzebul, um, then who do your sons cast out demons by? They're not casting out demons, and they leave that house shamed and naked. That, that house owns them. He's mastered by that house. Do, do you see that picture being drawn here by Luke? Can I say that again? The picture of these seven sons of Sceva who are making a claim that they don't have any authority to in the name of Jesus and trying to evoke that, 
They're mastered. They leave that house naked and shamed, okay? They have no power, no authority. There is one who has power and authority, and it's Jesus who first bound the strong man so that his goods would be plundered. That is, those could be redeemed. And, and Jesus is able to do that with his own authority. By, by just speaking the word, he can set people free. He can heal people. As Jesus gives this, um, uh, I'll say ability, that's the, the wrong word. He gives, in, in a moment, he empowers the disciples, the 72, he sends them out. And he says he gives them authority to, to cast out demons and to heal. And, and um, he, they do that in Jesus' own name and own power and own authority. And um, they come back and they report, even the demons are subject to us in your name. It's the name of Jesus that has the power. But Jesus' name is not a power. Can I say that again? The power is in Jesus' name, but Jesus' name is not a power like a shirt you put on. It's not a, a set of magic words that you invoke as though they have power in and of themselves. And this is the, the important um, connection about the, the power of Jesus' name. Okay, so this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. So, um, and the result of this is fear fell upon them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Okay, so God's doing amazing miracles. All this stuff happens. They see that these guys that claim to have power and authority don't have any real power and authority, but Jesus' name in itself that's healing people, that, Paul, that Paul's proclaiming that Jesus is, is the one. He's the name that all can be saved in. He's, he's actually practicing that. And he's uniting uh, Jews and Greeks all together. And this became known that it's the name of the Lord Jesus that actually has power. Okay. So here's what I, I want to just settle on then this morning. He, he uses, um, that demon does, he uses the, those two words. I, Jesus I know, Paul we've heard of, but, um, you know, who are you? And, um, Lots of people make much of that phrase and they're like, you know, I, I want my name to be known in hell. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, but that's not, the, that's not the emphasis of the story. The emphasis of the story is on the power of the name of the Lord Jesus. And we need to straighten our thinking out about the name of the Lord. In Matthew 7, 21, it says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, Many will say to me, now I'm going to read slow and you're going to listen careful, okay? Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Like, did, did, weren't we trying to tell the truth? And didn't we claim that that was, that was for you? And did we cast out demons in your name? Weren't we going around saying things and proclaiming that this is by the name of Jesus and for Jesus? And he says, and do many mighty works in your name. So this is their response. They're, they're, they're claiming Lord, Lord, meaning master, okay? And he says, that you, you say that, and you're going to claim that you've done all of these things, and you've done them in my name. But he's going to respond, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's Jesus' knowledge of you. It, you should care less and could care less whether or not a demon knows your name. What you do need to worry about is whether or not Jesus knows you. He says, I never knew you. It's that same, I, I, Jesus, I know. I have knowledge of Christ. And Christ needs knowledge of you. That's a, that's, a, that's a relational kind of knowing. So here's, I want to just stop for a moment 
And you say, well, I haven't tried to exercise any demons. I don't plan on exercising any demons. I, I don't invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over this or that thing. I'm going to just maybe four or five-ish things where we are guilty of using the name of the Lord as though it is a magical incantation, okay? As though it is just that the power is actually in, in the name, okay? So I will be um, burning a golden calf here in just a minute. I just want to prepare your, your, so find your pearls to clutch or whatever you want to do. But I'm just letting you know beforehand. So I'll start with an, uh, an easy one because I think it's, um, it's just, it's, it's, it's ubiquitous, okay? And that is just repeating the name of Jesus, whether that be in worship or in prayer, as though that makes it more meaningful, Okay? And that, that to, 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 to vainly repeat something to make it more powerful is the antithesis of what Jesus actually commands us to do. He says, you're not heard in prayer because of your many words, okay? Or, or by, by praying more loudly or more, more angrily or more fervently. So just repetition of things, whether it be in worship songs or something like that, um, as though that can obligate a response from Jesus. Well, um, you know, I, I said it was in Jesus' name. So adding that on the end of your prayer that was full of selfishness and desires of, of things that you want and your demands of Christ and then saying, and in Jesus' name, as though that obligates him to respond to you is a misuse of that. It is trying to sprinkle the name of Jesus on your wants and your desires and, and calling it good, okay? That, that has more in line with the, the mystical approach of the people in Ephesus about finding the right name, the right power, the right authority in the right order and saying it the right number of times and asking for it, you know, in the right voice, that, that, that aligns much more with that approach to things than the biblical commands of how we approach God in prayer. Okay? And so uh, that, that's one way. Now, along with that, here it is, prepare yourselves, the sinner's prayer. Okay? Now, why do I say that? Because you, the sinner's prayer is something that is offered to people as the resolution for this, this exact thing. I, I, don't, I don't have knowledge of who God is. God doesn't know me. And I, I say, I can fix that for you. Or I say, do you have a problem in your life? Or do you not want to go to hell, but go to heaven? Let me fix that for you. Repeat after me. Or at the end of a service, I say, raise your hand. And if you raise your hand because you want to accept Jesus today, repeat after me as though there were some progression of words that actually you can repeat after and that would cause you to then be reconciled to God. Now, before you storm the stage, let me say why that's a problem. Because somebody that doesn't really mean it will go back to that moment and trust in the words and not in the person. Okay? Well, I, I repeated after him. I raised my hand. The sinner's prayer has more in line with that mystical approach to the power of the name of Jesus than it does with saying what actually we're commanded to do. I am at the end of myself. What do I do? That's the, that's the biblical response. I, I've heard that I'm a sinner. I'm guilty before God. I have no means of fixing that. And Jesus is the means. What do I do? Repent and, and trust in him. And whatever means that, that you need to do that, to be, to the Holy Spirit works that out in you, not me giving you words, okay? So though that has been maybe helpful for some people to, to say if they never prayed before, something like that, it, it does more damage than it helps, okay? 
Now, if you disagree with that, that's okay. I just want you to know that we're still, we're still friends. We're still Christians, okay? And so I, I want you to see that there's dangers in just, just, just um, using the name of Jesus and saying, hey, you know, I trust in the name of Jesus without that, that, that truth being there that's planted by the Spirit, not by the Word, okay? So that's, that's emphasis there. Okay, other things. In using Jesus to avoid consequences, meaning you've done something stupid or bad or sinful, and you know that it's your fault, and yet you say, well, you know, I, I confessed or I apologized to, to Jesus, and as though that would um, alleviate the con- consequences or should alleviate the consequences. I murder somebody. I say, well, I repented, and Jesus says if we're faithful to um, confess that he'll forgive us, and so I, shall, I just don't want to deal with the consequences of going to jail or prison, right? No. Like, you using Jesus as as the means to alleviate natural consequences of your bad and wrong and sinful choices is not, is not okay. Uh, binding other people to your behavior um, or, or your inclinations about what's right or wrong. Well, I was in prayer and, and uh, I just had a strong impression that Jesus said this. No, you should read your Bible and that's what Jesus said, okay? But binding other people using the name of Jesus or the Holy Spirit, which is just the same, the person or the authority of Jesus, is, is the same kind of behavior, okay? I'm, I'm running down my list here. Um, how about um, the last one? I'll say repetition in worship, but also then just worship inaccuracy. Um, or or um, things that aren't entirely um, doctrinally sound, but then kind of covering that up because it, it, uh, it makes you feel good. Um, so let me... Uh, let me give an example. And um, in, inside of all of these are not always, it, it rarely is it Ill, ill-intentioned, meaning somebody doesn't set out to abuse or misuse the name of Christ. But in good intentions, they sometimes gloss over what should be truth and, and, and grasp for something extra. And, um, and so it, it always ends up in a place where it never started. And, and so here's, um, there's, a, there's a song that's on the radio right now. And... Um, I want to read you the lyrics of it, and maybe this will help you see a little more tangible example of what I mean. I speak the name of Jesus over you, in your hurting, in your sorrow. I'll ask my God to move. I speak the name of Jesus, because it's all that I can do. In desperation, I seek heaven, and I pray this over you. Now, that sounds like, well, isn't that good? Like, don't you want somebody to, to pray the name of Jesus over you? Well, Yes and no, you should pray the name of Jesus. You, you can't pray for someone else. You can, you can, I said that, and that could be taken two different ways. You can pray for someone else, but I can't pray to God for you. Does that make sense? Okay. That also could be taken two ways, but okay. But he says, I, I pray, she says, I, I pray for your healing that your circumstances would change. I pray that the fear inside would flee in Jesus' name. I pray that a breakthrough would happen today. I pray miracles over your life in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Which is that vain repetition. It's just declaring things that have no connection to the person that apparently is, is actually in need. That's the disconnection and believing that the power is in the, the actual name. Now, what's much more in line with reality is not that you don the jersey with Christ and the power and authority that goes along with it. Do not hear me saying that Manning is the Christ, okay? What matters is not the name 
on the back, which much more realistic is the name on the front. That when you put on Christ, you become part of and have access to the authority and the power of him. You're, you're now on team Jesus, but you don't own his name. But because of your un, uniting together with him, you have access to everything that he would provide to those that he loves and everything that he has access to. When at one point the, the disciples go and they're, and, um, well, I should say, a, a man comes to them with, with his son who's demon possessed and they can't heal him. And, uh, and so they go and they, they find Jesus and they say, hey, we, we, the disciples aren't able to heal this guy. And so he, he cast out the demon and the disciples come to Jesus later and they say, hey, you know, what, what was going on? Like, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus' answer is this. This kind comes out only by prayer. Now, um, we can make much of that, but I, I want to just take it at face value and emphasize this. What is prayer? Prayer is simply admitting need and asking for God to do what we cannot. Prayer is asking for God to do what we cannot. So when, when Jesus gives them the authority originally to, to, to heal, and he's, they're doing it in Jesus' name, and they're able to just speak, be healed, or touch and be healed, or demon go, Okay? in the name of Jesus, and they're doing this. And at this moment, they're not able to do this on this, man, uh, on this uh, man's son. And Jesus said, this kind only comes out by prayer. They, they have to ask Jesus to do something. And Jesus later says, look, up to this point, you've not asked anything in my name. And he goes on to talk about that he's, he's, um, he's going to leave, but he's going to give another Holy Spirit. But the, the point is this, that Jesus is now in heaven, and he is the physical presence and making our petitions known before God. And he's, he's the, the reason why we have access to the Father in prayer. You've not asked for anything up to this point in my name, but now post-ascension, post we can ask for things in Jesus' name. This kind only comes out by prayer. Our, our access, our authority, anything that we could offer only comes out by actually um, casting our, ourselves in, in, in need before God. That's what prayer is, plain and simple. So the distinction here is on people who come and they say, you know, all along the way, I was doing things and I was doing them in your name. And Jesus says, you, you were never seeking me. You never had the relationship where you sought me first. I didn't know you. You didn't come and ask for something from me so that I could give it to you. Am, am that making sense? Okay. So, I'll resolve on this. That if we are doing things right, what happens is not that we, are, that we become known or that we become powerful or that anybody cares about who we are, but that the name of the Lord Jesus is extolled and becomes great, okay? And um, the results of us when we um, are submitted to God and when we um, have the Holy Spirit is that profound changes begin to take place. Not just in us, but in the, the, the places where we are and the places that we live. And so this sort of begins the, um, the, the, the pre-rumblings of this explosion of not just the gospel in Ephesus, but then the response to that by the kingdom of, of darkness. And so we'll get to that next week. Um, so let me pray, and we'll be um, done this morning. Father, we thank you for um, this time. I pray that this... Um, word 